So here we are together in this slightly old and funky, but on a good day has its charm retreat center out in the desert with all the changes. The wind comes up and then it stops and then it gets really hot in the sun and then it gets cool at night and some of you might have seen the tortoise that walked through yesterday up kind of checking out the meeting rooms and interview rooms and see if it might want to come in and have a little conversation about its walking meditation, you know. And um, there was a giant raven sitting out here as we walked in having a conversation with Wes, who's one of Raven's people, apparently. Um, And then you take your seat. And you sit and you walk. Especially if you're somewhat new to coming on a retreat, you're sitting and walking and there's the sound of the road going by, you know, the traffic, and then you start to get a little quiet, and then you notice that you're sleepy, and then after a while you wake up and you get restless and you think, what else can I do? Um, Then you get bored, right? Then you judge yourself, I'm not doing it right. And then you look at your own mind. And it's like that cartoon in The New Yorker that shows a car crossing the vast Utah desert with the roadside billboard that reads, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? (laughs) And that's more or less a description of meditation. And you say, okay, what have I done? What am I doing? Um, Because the body still can be a bit painful in these days and... You know, you're sitting with all the stuff of your life, the beautiful things and the creative thoughts and the losses and the tears. And you take your seat in the middle of all of this. And I talked today, and the folks I saw in the meeting were mostly pretty experienced practitioners. And they were experiencing the same settling down process mostly, even after having done it over many years because it takes its time to settle when you come out of the speed of our culture. And there is pains and their own losses and struggles and illnesses people were dealing with. But also what was beautiful to hear was a kind of graciousness and forbearance and perspective and wisdom and even a kind of lightness or joy of spirit amidst it all. And I really felt heartened about, you know, this stuff works. Looking for this little passage from an Indian teacher that says, go ahead, light your candles and incense and call out to the gods at your altar, but watch out because the gods will come and they will fire up their forge and put you on their anvil and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. And so there is some very deep commitment that it takes and a kind of courage to take this time out of your life and take your seat in this mystery of your human incarnation without so much trying to fix it or get somewhere or 
make yourself something else. Um, but to actually show up for this life that you've been given to the reality of your experience with its 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows that make up humanity. And you sit as the Buddha. That's how we spoke of last night. You take your own seat under the Bodhi tree. Recently, Trudy and I were on a trip to India and Burma. And a couple of the places that we visited in Burma, in the north in Shan State especially, there was a nun that we met who was probably in her 40s, early 40s. She had gotten cancer, metastatic cancer in her early 20s and then refused surgery. I think partly if you looked at upcountry up Burma hospitals, you might refuse surgery as well because there's not a lot to say for them. Um, and instead she went out into the forest to find one of the masters of the traditional medicine, herbs and so forth. And she did that for a year or two while she also undertook a, a really fierce meditation practice. And she said, I sat and there was fire in this part of my body and then it moved to that part and I sat and I sat. And somebody said, well, you know, how much did you practice during that time? And, and she was kind of surprised by the question. She said, continuously. And somehow she managed to heal herself. It's really a beautiful story. Um, and when she came back, she became um, of interest to other people because of what she had discovered, and you could feel it in her in some way. And People began to ask her to teach them the practices of mindfulness and presence and loving kindness, compassion that she had learned. And so she did, and gradually around her grew this beautiful monastery that the foundation we were traveling with part of helped to build um, for women. And when we visited, there were orphans there, and there were probably 100 or 150 women. Um, and she took in battered women, mental patients or people who had mental illness from the local area. She took in um, people who were homeless, um, uh, people who'd suffered a lot of trauma of different kinds. And she said, I'll teach you to meditate. And it took my breath away a little bit because often those wouldn't be the populations I would say come to our retreat, right? Um, but she carried a kind of dignity and courage and big-heartedness and faith that you could just feel in her being. There was both a stillness and a, and a, I don't know, what's titanium or something like that in her being so that you could come in with any problem of your life, any difficulty, whatever it was, and she would say, fine, sit down. I'll show you that you can handle this because I handled the fire myself. And it was very moving to be with her and be with all the women that she was teaching and you could feel their passion and their devotion and practice. And we were going on the stairs from the fourth floor meditation hall down the stairs. And as we were leaving, a, an old woman came up to Trudy on the stairs without any teeth and clearly had lived a very hard life, didn't speak much English, and kind of grabbed Trudy by the arm 
and, and, and looked at her and said, peace of mind, peace of mind, as if that's what she had really found there in this place. Um, and when we talked to her, we talked to this amazing nun who ran a school for orphans and young kids who all sang to us, kind of knocked us over with their huge, you know how first graders are, with these giant beaming smiles and eyes and sang to us. And it was like a blast of metta and joy. And, you know, why are you doing this? Well, it's a way of living the Buddhist teachings. It's a way of serving. It's a way of cultivating or embodying the paramitas, which are called the, they're described sometimes as the perfections or really the qualities of the awakened heart. And they said, well, we find them in ourselves and then we want the joy of other people, these children of these women, to find them in themselves. So tonight I'd like to talk about those qualities of the paramitas, um, and they are the fulfillment of our own Buddha nature. The Buddha was a list maker. So there's, there's a six paramitas and there's ten paramitas, you know, just like there's the Eightfold Path and Four Noble Truths and the Three Characteristics and the Five Faculties and the Twelve Links of Dependent Origination and so forth. Either he made a list or all the people after him. They all did. Anyway, so I may get through the list or I may just do part of it. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but I want to frame them in a different way. Um, maybe mythologically is a way to start. It's said that when Siddhartha Gautama, this Buddha of 25, 2600 years ago, whose story Howie spoke of last night, was much younger, he met in a previous lifetime the Dipankara Buddha, a previous Buddha, and he saw in Dipankara Buddha the qualities of joy and peacefulness and presence and courage and radiance. And he said, this is what I vow to fulfill in myself. And he took the vow to awaken in this way. And then when he two sounds. That's good. When you take that kind of a vow, um, it said to fulfill it um, takes uh, four immensities and 100,000 mahakalpas of time to cultivate patience, compassion, dedication, truthfulness, wisdom, the qualities of a Buddha. Now one mahakalpa is described the height of Mount Vaipula, which is a little taller than Everest. And every hundred years, a bird drags a silk scarf across the top of that mountain, wearing it away slightly. And when that mountain, higher than Everest, is worn down by the scarf of the bird, that's one Mahakalpa. So 100,000 of those and four immensities. You hear that and you go, okay, I've been here a day and a half, you know. How's it going? How much longer? But what happens, actually, when you hear this is that it's impossible in that, in that literal way. And what it speaks of mythologically, rather, 
is some reality that's outside of time, that is timeless. It's a dimension not of your effort and your ideas about yourself, but of something much bigger, which is closer to who you really are in this mysterious incarnation. And what it says is that wherever you find yourself, not in 100,000 mahakalpas of wearing down the mountain, but actually wherever you find yourself, that becomes the field for awakening and embodying these qualities of a Buddha. Not in time, but in the immensity of your own dignity and your own presence and your own big heart, which you are born with. And in some way you remember and re-inhabit as you come on this retreat. And I'm always moved to watch people on retreat, even in the first days of struggle, because it looks a little bit like a greenhouse, right? And you're all like potted Buddha plants or something like that, and you get watered a little bit and a little bit of, you know, soil amendments and things like that, and and probably cactus in certain cases here, prickery a little bit, but also beautiful and green flowers are going to come out. I know they are. And somehow, in this willingness to stay rooted in the reality of the present, in the timeless present, these qualities of awakening that are your true nature begin to blossom. Now, the first of these qualities, and I'll name them and play with them a little bit, and hopefully you'll feel them as I talk about them, is the paramita of generosity. And generosity really means stepping from the small sense of self, the body of fear, to realize a kind of inner abundance of heart. It's not something you should do. Rather, it's a universal law that as you open to generosity, you also open to freedom and joy. Because giving is trusting, it's letting go, and and it's joyful. Do you know a really generous person who isn't happy? There's some great beauty in it. And what's true is the world is generous to you. I mean, yes, it's generous in giving you troubles so that you can develop is develop some courage and compassion and understanding. But as my friend poet Alison Luderman writes, um, in the same way sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face, Rose opens herself to your glance, and rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. And so we live, especially in this particular time and culture, even if you struggle with finances, you can still walk into a grocery store for the most part and see a banquet that no emperor in previous eras ever had. Fruit from, you know, the tropical rainforest brought to your table and cheeses from France and Denmark and, you know, amazing vegetables from all around the world. And and I had a friend who came from Russia in the early 80s when it was still quite dreary and communist. 
and walked into a supermarket in San Francisco and just began to weep and said, what is this? I said, well, this is a supermarket, you know, Safeway. No big deal, right? And he's just standing there weeping. And then he said, how many of these are there? I said, well, there's a United Market down the block and there's, you know, whatever it was, market two blocks over. Just couldn't believe it. And this is life giving itself to you. And on your part, generosity means to take joy in the exchange of life, not to feel that small sense of self to be who you are. It said that there are three levels of generosity. Generosity means the things and the love and the care and all the things that you share with this world. The first is called tentative giving. Oh, I might help that person or I might give that away, but mm, maybe I'll too bus- be too busy, I'll get tired, or if I give that away, maybe, I, maybe I'll, I'll need it later. I should stash it in the garage, right? Your poor garage, right? But anyway, there you are. And then you think, no, no, I'll give it away or I'll help them. And after you do, almost always, you don't miss it. And it feels good to have done it. It's already a good thing. But the next level is called brotherly or sisterly giving. And that's when you say, this is my brother, this is my sister. Come share what I have. And there's something so beautiful. You know it if you go and live in the village of traditional cultures, that there's this sense of open-heartedness, of share, that makes it makes life more beautiful. And you can do this. You can learn it. And it's not just that you should do it, but it changes who you are. You become more of the Buddha in that way. I remember the joy the Dalai Lama took when we had a whole series of teacher meetings in Dharamsala in his palace or his home. And um, some of them were wonderful. Some of them were dicey. We brought up some really difficult stuff and I was very glad to do it. I was able to kind of help moderate them. And at the end he said, come on up to the roof. We went on the roof of his palace and there's the whole Himalayan range there. And he said, in the big smile, which he has often, I have a gift for you. And he had taken out of his, whatever it was, the Tibetan treasury, these old Tibetan coins, as if they were still really, you know, from the government of Tibet. And he placed one in each of our hands, and we were just over the moon with delight to get, you know, Tibetan money, these silver, beautiful silver coins from the Dalai Lama. And he was as happy as we were to do it. The third kind of giving is called royal giving. It's when you take the best, what you most enjoy and love, and say, oh, wouldn't it be fantastic for him or her, for them to also enjoy this? And so without worry that the abundance of the world won't bring you more, that you don't contain what you need, you share of the very best. And you can hear, even as you listen, the delight, the freedom that comes in this. And this is just the first of those paramitas, right? Gosh, I could just go on and on about this one. Um, I'm going to tell you another story anyway. I don't care if I get to the other ones. <laughs> we'll see. So Ramdas, when he was, um, he had this major stroke, as most people know. And he was in the hospital down Palo Alto in the ICU. And they only gave him a 10% chance of surviving. It was a really bad stroke. And 
you couldn't even really visit him. It was more severe than that. And all the people that he'd served and helped over the years, friends and so forth, were calling in and saying, what can we do? How can we help? What can... And what can you do when somebody's in the ICU? There ain't much you can do, you know? Especially in that condition, you can hardly even visit them. And so no one really knew. They just said, we'll offer your prayers. And he was part of the network of social conscious business. And then someone had a good idea. They realized that in the hospital there, nobody knew who Ramdas was, almost nobody. It, the people attending him were younger generation or immigrants from the Philippines, first generation, or Guatemala, or places like that. So they called Ramdas's buddies in the social ventures network, um, Ben and Jerry, um, the people who started the body shop. And two days later, these trucks pulled up at the hospital and unloaded huge gift packages for everyone on the staff, giant things of ice cream in the freezers and unguents and body lotions. And people were saying, who is this Ramdas, you know? <laughs> and that generosity, which was really the return of his love, changed everything for him. So you feel what it's like when you hear these awakened qualities. And there's something in you that resonates because you already know this. And you say, yes, why not live this way? The second of these awakened qualities, um, and it's a really a quality of courage or the fearless heart, is integrity or virtue. O nobly born, begin the Buddhist texts. Do not forget who you really are. And Ajahn Chah, my teacher, loved to talk about virtue. There was a time when a person's word was gold. You know, when what they said really, really mattered and meant something. And um, basically, the gift of integrity um, is the ability, it's said in various ways, to sleep well, you know, to have honorable relations with the world. Um, and without integrity, well, it's, it's hard to um, meditate after a day of killing and stealing, basically. It doesn't work very well. Or as Ajahn Chah says, it's like getting in the rowboat and rowing while you're still tied to the dock. All spiritual practice is worthless without a foundation of virtue. Because spirituality isn't about experience. You'll have all kinds of experiences in these nine days. Um, it's about embodying who you really are, remembering this. And virtue is a kind of generosity of heart. So we took the precepts not to harm beings. A bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. Right? That's from the finest calligrapher in America, the guy who taught Steve Jobs. His name was Lloyd Reynolds. Um, to not harm other beings, to not steal, to not lie. Not, you know, again, as some, like you shouldn't do this as some commandment, but because it actually somehow taints the heart. And to not cause harm through the misuse of intoxicants or sexuality. Misuse of intoxicants, 10 million drug addicts, 20 million alcoholics, the majority of auto fatalities, the majority of home fires, 
the suffering, enormous. Misuse of sexuality, I always ask. How many people in this room have made idiots of themselves in sexual relations? Don't bother. Right? We know the answer already, right? So it can be associated with graciousness and love or you know, delight, or it can be associated with um, that which causes harm. And underneath it um, is the generosity of heart that says, I will speak what's true, I will live uh, with care for myself and for others. John invited his mother over to dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful John's roommate was. She'd long been suspicious about a relationship between John and his roommate, and this made her more curious watching and seeing his mother's eyes. John said, I know what you might be thinking, but I assure you Carrie and I are just roommates. A week later, Carrie came to John and said, you know, ever since your mom was here, I've been unable to find that silver soup ladle we use for dinner. Why don't you check with her? So he said, it's it's weird, but all right, I'll email her. Dear mom, I'm not saying you did anything, took it or not, to this soup ladle, but not, you know, since you've been here, it's been missing. Um, And he got an email back later. Um, Dear John, I'm not saying you do sleep with uh, Carrie, or I'm not saying you don't, but the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the soup ladle by now. (laughs) Love mother, you know. (laughs) The title of this is Don't Lie to Your Mother. It's the basics of an awakened life. Integrity. And it, you know, it doesn't work the other, but also in the end it doesn't. It gives you dignity. Um, And your virtue here is part of what protects you as you sit and walk and practice. Another quality is renunciation. And it's a huge thing in the Buddhist teachings. Um, And one of the big changes in the emphasis in Buddhism in the West is less emphasis on the outer form of monastic renunciation, becoming a monk or a nun, although some choose to do that. And more fundamentally, the natural renunciation of the heart. We all share this longing for simplicity. I mean, it's an amazing thing to put down your electronics, isn't it? Put down the tether to your smartphone and your mobile devices of all kinds. And and when we do the teen retreats, it's like, well, who will I be if I can't, you know, tweet and text and, you know, send the photos and everything? We've gotten so intertwined with that. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you would like to simplify your life? Yeah, exactly. Also. So the most basic renunciation is the renunciation in the heart. Yes, it's simplifying your life, and coming here to simplify your life is a great gift because in it you can actually be where you are, not past and future. But an even deeper level of renunciation, once you take the outer form, is to renounce greed and hatred, renounce 
judgment and attacking yourself or others to renounce fear, to somehow be willing to take the seat and not identify with those experiences. I almost always read this passage from James Baldwin because it means a lot to me. He writes, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly is that they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so we, as humans or as a culture, project our fear, really, and our pain onto others, the communists, the immigrants, the Muslims, as if they were all terrorists, and there's you know, 1.2 billion Muslims. Um, somebody out there who looks different or speaks differently to carry the vulnerability and the insecurity and the fear or the measure of pain that we have been given to bear with some compassion and dignity, we place it on someone else. And so one of the great renunciations that you do here is to take it all back and take your seat and say, here I am, in the midst of this human life, you know, with its magnificence and blessings um, and its measure of tears and not to place it on another. If you want to do a deep renunciation, you could practice the renunciation of views and opinions. You'll notice you have some. Views and opinions. Yes. Or being right. Sometimes it's things. You know, we want a huge garage sale. Please, someone to help us with it. But more often than that, it's renouncing the complexity and busyness and ideas and so forth and saying, let me just be here with this life, with this body, this heart, this mind, and attend to it with the kind of presence of a Buddha, which is your birthright, which is your possibility. And as you do, it makes room for a kind of grace. You know, you let go, you allow yourself to be present, you feel what's here, and in it, then something else becomes possible. Not because you're trying to become something, and practice isn't meant to be a grim duty. Really, it's an invitation for a a profound kind of presence that you already know in yourself. Sometimes, well, here's a story. In the Jewish mystical tradition, one great rabbi taught his disciples to memorize, reflect, contemplate, and place the teachings of the holy words on their hearts. One day a student asked the rabbi why he always used the phrase, on your heart. The master replied, only time, only the divine, only something vast can put the teachings in your heart. Here we recite and learn and put them on the heart, hoping that sometime when your heart breaks, they will fall in. And so your simplicity of presence, your openness, allows for some deeper 
tenderness and vulnerability and openness. And from that, your understanding grows, your presence grows, your love grows. Another of the paramitas is that of energy, the vitality of life. And you need energy to do this practice and effort, but mostly it's not the effort to make something happen. It's the effort to be present for what actually is. And in the first days, it might be sleepiness. If you go to any great temple in Japan, those great Zen monasteries, or an ashram in India, or a temple in Burma, in the afternoon after the meal, the great monks and yogis are all nodding. It's part of being human. It's not a mistake. In one temple I lived in Burma, it was called the poor man's nirvana, right? So the point isn't to judge it, but to become mindful. There you are, sensing the breath and the body, and then a wave of sleepiness comes, and you can bow to it and name it, oh, this is what sleepiness is like. Or maybe it's opposite, restlessness comes, and you're bored and you're so restless, and you name it restless, restless. Oh, I wish this would go away, wishing, wishing. I hate this restlessness, hating, hating, you know. And then it gets worse, restless. I don't think I can do this, doubt, doubt, right? Then what to do? At some point, when it gets really bad, the instruction is simple. You say, all right, take me. I'll be the first person in 2014 to die of restlessness at, you know, Joshua Tree Retreat. And the minute you surrender and say, all right, I'll die of restlessness or boredom or loneliness, guess what? It becomes easier. Because most of the difficulty is your resistance to the experience. And if you can't be with it, then as soon as you get bored or restless, what do you do? Open the refrigerator, right? Go online. You know what you do. I don't have to tell you, right? Because you can't be alone. I think it's Hafiz says, you know, um, something about don't surrender your loneliness too quickly. Let it season you. Let it touch you like few ingredients can. Let it cut more deeply. It will take you to some deep understanding. So you don't move away from these things or fear comes and you name it. Oh, This is fear, fear. And it feels a certain way in the body, and then you notice the stories that it tells. Fear is always about something that hasn't come yet. Have you noticed? Mark Twain, I always quote, where he says, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened, right? So you see the fear storytelling. Say, thank you for, you know, the story. That's really a scary one, huh? You know, and you take your seat in the middle of it with the presence of mindfulness. Not judging. I mean, you could also name the judgment when it comes. Because you judge a lot, you've noticed. They wouldn't hire you to be a judge in a civilized country in many of your cases, right? And mostly you judge yourself. So the tender heart says, oh, There's the judging mind. Thank you for your opinion. I appreciate it. And then you rest in compassion. 
but I shouldn't be judging so much. Stop that. I hate that judgment. I wish there weren't so much judgment. But what's that? Just more judgment. Thank you again for your opinion. Zen Master Ryokan, the favorite poet of Japan, writes, Last year a foolish monk, this year no change. (laughs) The practice and the courage is really to meet triumph and disaster, as Rudyard Kipling says, and treat these two imposters just the same, and then you will discover the greatness of heart. Things are the way that they are, and you take your seat, with the dignity and the presence in the midst of them. This steadiness. Another of these qualities is wisdom. How he spoke of it last night so much, so I won't really say much. Thus shall ye think of this leading world, says the Diamond Sutra, says the Buddha. A star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer crowd, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, and a dream. And as you sit, you see the river of time, the ineluctable modality of change, one thing after another, thoughts, feelings, the shifting of the sunlight, the arising of the wind. You are change. You are the river of change. And you are also the Mindful witness, the loving awareness that notices the play of sights and sounds and thoughts and feelings. And wisdom understands this changing life and takes your seat in the middle of it. As Zen Master Suzuki Roshi says, when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. So it's not that your practice here is to stop your feelings, the river of feelings, the river of thoughts, the changing sensations, but to take your seat as the Buddha that you are with a great and wise heart in the midst of it all. And this wisdom is married to patience. Remember that song, You Can't Hurry Love? If you think that peace and happiness are somewhere else and you run after them, you will never arrive. It is only when you realize that peace and happiness are truly available just here in the present moment that you will be able to relax. Touch the present moment and you will touch genuine peace and joy. That's from Thich Nhat Hanh. We live in this hurried society and I certainly participate in it at times hurried children, hurried adults. Our fruit is picked green, then gassed, you know, and chipped, and we hope it ripens, but it doesn't really taste quite like a tomato, you know? Everything like that. Patience is perhaps a wrong word, says Suzuki Roshi. A better word for it is constancy. Because the sense of patience is, all right, if I'm patient, now it's been two days, and I, you know, I'm good, 
then something great will come. So it's sort of placing the result out there somewhere. Constancy, instead, is a trust in the unfolding of life, in the opening of your own body and heart, of your own capacity to be where you are and let things open. And it doesn't mean you can't respond and you can't be proactive at times, but even that can be done with a, with a patient heart. And you know how great it is to be with somebody, even somebody who's strong and visionary. We got the chance to visit and see Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma, Nobel laureate and likely to become the next leader of Burma. And she carried herself with so much graciousness and dignity and beauty. And there are all these troubles that she's working in her way to tend to in Burma. But after 17 years of house arrest, you could feel this woman had patience. She knew how to hang in there. And she said, they didn't even really have me in prison or arrest because I never hated them. I just use it to meditate and practice. And now I'm practicing in this form. And you can do the same. You can live your life with that beautiful and deep understanding of what's possible. Gracious heart in the seasons of time. And as Pablo Neruda writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. And so even the things that we worry about, sometimes which we need to care for and tend, I don't mean that that isn't also part of our Buddha's responsibility for the world. Um, but the secret, gee, should I give the secret on the second day? <laughs> the secret is to act beautifully without attachment to the fruits of your actions. That it's not given to you, and I'll talk more about it later in the retreat, it's not given to you to see to determine how it's going to come out. But what's given to you is to act beautifully um, and offer yourself to the world in that way. Then, you're kind of going through the list here. Then there's truthfulness. The truthful heart. To see what's true. And sitting here, the beautiful thing is you can't avoid it, can you? I mean, you can. You can fall asleep for a bit and wish you weren't here and go into fantasy and denial and all those things. And don't think you're the only one. The person next to you on the left and the right has also done that periodically. Um, and that's fine. That's part of the game, just to be truthful about that. Oh, this one's hard. Ouch, this hurts. This is difficult when the things are. And then you stay. And you say, it's like this. This is the way things are. Krishnamurti who said, when the mind becomes still, silent, neither grasping nor resisting anything whatsoever, it becomes possible to see what is true. And it is the truth that liberates and not your effort to be free. So this is called insight meditation. And the game isn't to have a particular experience, although you will have quieter mind, opening to the desert, sense of, the small self opening to something more vast at times, all kinds of beautiful things, but those come and go. And the truth that liberates is this dance of change 
and the great heart of wisdom and compassion that takes your seat in the midst of it, which you give to yourself, but also you give to all that you touch. To see what's true, to speak the truth. As the Buddha says, to speak the truth in due season and to the benefit of others, not to their harm. To really tend to what we say. But it's called a lamp in the darkness. And I remember in one of our conversations with the Dalai Lama about virtue and teaching these realizations in a culture that's based on untruth. How's that? Where you turn on the television and it's really hard to sort through whether it's the politics or the advertising or the, you know, whatever it happens to be or the airbrushed people or something like that to see what's true, you know. And then all that stuff that's used to frighten you Everybody knows this passage from Dwight Eisenhower. Every gun that's made, every warship launched, every rocket fired, I could weep when I read it, signifies in the end, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and not clothed. This world in its arms race is not spending money alone It's spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. This is not a way of life in any true sense. It is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. Speaking what's true. And it is what's true that frees us to see it and to know it. And to rest in a truthful heart brings you such power and such dignity. But it takes the next quality as well to do that, which is the paramita called atitana or dedication. It's really a a steadiness of heart, willingness to see what Howie spoke of, of the first noble truth, to see suffering, to see its causes, and to see its end, to stick with it in some way and not turn away, and to know with your dedication that you are following the path that your ancestors and the, the practitioners of thousands of years before you have followed, you carry in you a kind of courage of survival. The reason you're here is because your people, remember who they were back there, your parents, grandparents, whatever, whatever you say about them, they survived and they gave that to you. And so you become a survivor as well. And then you become dedicated. Let me take this life, not just to survive, but to make of it, to inhabit it in a way that fulfills your true nature, your Buddha nature, your, the best of your being. And it's not easy. When um, I had a recent conversation with the musician Joan Baez, who sits at Spirit Rock regularly, And she'd come back from a South American tour and got to sing in Argentina. And she said, I was singing songs that I haven't sung. You know, some of them I kind of put on hold since I walked with Martin Luther King. and I just felt that I had to sing them there. 
she said. And then, you know, toward the end of the concert, it was prearranged to do this. One of the Los Madres, one of the mothers of the plaza, came up. And if you don't know the story, most people do. Um, I read you. Where is it? Come along, here we go. Twenty years ago, the mothers went to the plaza in front of the presidential palace in Buenos Aires and confronted the bureaucracy of horror. The mothers were fed up with futile visits to military chaplains who wore army boots under their robes and to the complaints office where the dictator denied kidnapping and torturing their children. When the women congregated at the plaza, police snapped at them to keep moving. So the 14 mothers walked the plaza in slow circles. They kept coming back to protest, braving nightsticks, police dogs, military spies who infiltrated the group and killed three leaders. They say the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo were fearless, says Maria Adela Antocles, now in her 80s, who moves with slow, tottering steps and enormous dignity. But we were scared to death. We learned to walk with fear, to live with fear. We had an obligation to find our children. The mothers still march every Thursday afternoon demanding justice. Now around the world, the ritual moves bystanders to tears and applause. The women are elderly and fragile now. They walk arm in arm, hunched between, beneath the white headscarves that have become an international symbol of the fight for human rights. We never found our children, Maria said, but in the plaza we went to school. We told our story 50 times. We wept together. It was our educational academy. The plaza saved us from the madhouse. At 325, the plaza would be empty as a desert. And five minutes later, the mothers would appear like plants growing out of the subway station, the side streets. The people would come up and ask, who are you? Teachers, pensioners, what are you protesting? And it spread by word of mouth. And when Cortesar, our great writer, heard about it in Paris, he said, the mothers are out. The military has already lost. So Joan said that being on stage and singing at the end of her concert, then one of the mothers, there aren't so many left, came up in her white headscarf. And this whole huge stadium just stood up and cheered. What is this life for if not to live it with dignity and awakening? And so we do this very simple practice in a way, but it also takes a kind of courage to come back again and again and to be here for your own experience with mindfulness and presence and compassion. And the last two qualities then are compassion or loving kindness. You can't do this without love. Otherwise, mindfulness becomes a kind of survey of judgment, liking this and disliking that. Ramdas calls it loving awareness. You are loving awareness. He says, sit and be the loving awareness. 
not your thoughts or your feelings or your opinions or your hopes or your fears. Be the loving awareness that witnesses it all with the heart. And that's really what makes the difference in this practice. It what's allow the Buddha plant that you are to flower and blossom. If you did nothing during this week but just put your hand on your heart and breathe gently, love yourself, it would be a week, nine days really well spent. A woman who's a chaplain in a hospital says that she has a particular practice Once a year, she goes around and blesses the hands of all the people who work there. I go around and find the people in the basement who are serving the food and cleaning the toilets. I look for those people who want to make sure their hands get blessed. And last year, one of them said to me, this is the most meaningful thing that's ever happened to me. These people are not always as valued as they should be. And so when I go around finding everyone, wherever they are, and bless their hands... They're often startled and then really touched by it, as I am. And there's a way that the power of loving kindness is really, a, and mindfulness, loving awareness, there's a kind of blessing that you offer to yourself, to each breath, to hold the sensations of your body, the pleasures that come, the ease that comes at certain points, the struggles and the pains, and to touch it all with a, deep loving kindness. And when you find it in yourself, then somehow it spreads. It touches, it shines, it inspires, it moves. Um, Marababa says it's contagious, actually. It vibrates in the hearts and beings of everyone else. My friend Alison Luderman, again, poet, poem called At the Corner Store. It was a new old Arab man behind the counter, skinny, brown, and eager. He greeted me like I was his prodigal daughter, as if we both came from the same world somewhere warmer and more gracious than this foggy city. I was thirsty and alone, sick at heart, grief-soiled, exiled from my family through my own faulty temperament. And his face lit up like I was his lost sheep wandering home, coming back to the freezer bins in front of the register, which were still and always filled with the same star heart ice cream sandwiches and corn chips strung. I shuffled to the register and bought my bottled water, and he returned my change beaming like I was a bright new bud on the just-bursting open cherry trees, like I was everything precious struggling to grow, and he was blessing me as he handed me my change over the dirty counter with its plastic tub of red licorice whips, five for a quarter. This old man who didn't speak English beamed out love to me the iron week after my mother's death, so that when I emerged from his store, my whole cockeyed life, wonderful failure, glowed like a sunset after rain. City dogs yelping in their yards behind chain-link fences and in the driveway of appealing 
paint house, a woman and a girl danced to contagious reggae. Praise Allah, the Buddha, Kuan Yin, Jesus, Mary, and jealous old Jehovah, for the eyes and the hands of the Blessed One are everywhere. So if you do nothing else with your mindfulness, but bring a kind of love to a breath, to a step, to this mysterious body, to the fountain of thoughts and the river of feelings, as the Buddha that you are, the inhabit the great heart of compassion that is your birthright. And this leads you to the equanimity, the last of these gifts. To rest in the turning of the seasons, to see the unfolding of the world and not fall under its spell, and at the same time love it. To remember, O nobly born, who you really are, the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, and to live with generosity and kindness of heart and dedication and truthfulness. What better thing can we do as human beings? And it seems like such a simple thing here. It's not easy, I know that. And that's absolutely fine. If it weren't difficult to, you wouldn't learn some of the things that your heart really needs to learn that will carry you through anything. So it's also a blessing that we can share this together. Let's sit for a moment. So take a half an hour for walking practice and then please come back for the last sitting from 9 to 9.30 and a little bit of chanting. And then you can take rest in the beautiful, cool desert night.